Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Cast Dice, the podcast that explores the great big wild world of tabletop gaming that exists today. It's been said once or twice, mainly on this podcast, that we are in the middle of a gaming renaissance. There are just too many good games out there that we can spend our hobby time and our hobby dollars on, and it can lead to a serious case of not knowing what to play next. And I guess that's the purpose of this podcast. It's to talk about the games that my guests and I enjoy playing, to talk about big industry events, and to talk about the the events, the tournaments, uh, you know, the, the narrative get-togethers that we engage in on the tabletop that really brings gaming to life. Now, we are in 2021, but 2020 is still a giant looming shadow over us, as is the, the joy of uh, the COVID era. And of course, I'm sarcastic when I say that. So narrative gaming, tournaments, events, they are really rare as hen's teeth across the world at the moment. They just aren't happening. And it's one of the things that I've noticed um, when talking to guests. In 2020, I really didn't talk to many people who had A, played in an event, let alone B, run an event. Now, we in Melbourne last year locked down hard, we locked down early, and we locked down for a really long time. And it was, it, was, it was a slog. But in recent weeks, um, Melbourne's really sort of come back to life. Um, we have very little COVID here. Uh, in fact, I think we're back to five or six days of no new cases out in the wild. Um, there are some in quarantine. But it, it's meant that restrictions have lifted for us here to the point where gaming is starting to come back. And recently... Uh, there was an event that was in, in, in a big part of the gaming calendar here in Melbourne. They got pushed back and postponed a couple times in 2020. But the TO, old personal friend, and I'll get to him in just a second, um, really stuck with it. And he was able to reschedule it and run it just about a week ago. Uh, and, of course, I should probably get to the guests so I can introduce the game. Now... It is not every day that I get to have old, good friends on this show from, from I don't want to say the, the dark days, the glory days, whatever days those were when I was a competitive 40K player. But this man and I traveled to Canberra together for the very first ever uh, Australian 40K Masters tournament. It was the Invitational. You had to be the best of the best of the best, sir, or something. And for some reason, they invited me. But uh, we rolled up as part of a crew, and another member of that crew dubbed the guys who went up. Uh, I believe it was 40K royalty, uh, I think is what the term was. And if anyone out of that crew was royalty, it is my guest today, one of literally the best painters I have ever seen, uh, a good, close, personal friend, Adam Trepetsky. Welcome to Cast Dice. Thanks for having me on, Brad, and lovely to be speaking with you again. Uh, that intro was very flattering. Thank you. <laughs> Dude, if I don't make my guests feel awkward, I'm not doing my job right. Now, uh, the nickname over the years was Golden. Is that Golden Boy or Golden Brush? Because, uh, man, I remember back in the day, I think the very first time I heard of you before I even met you was at a 40K event. And I was walking around looking at people's armies and a friend came up and said, dude, you have got to actually, I think because it's Australia, I said, mate, you've got to see this guy's army. 
and it was a Chaos Space Marine army that was orange and black, and it was unbelievably gorgeous. And that was just you starting out. And now your Thousand Sons are off the chain. Thanks very much. I think that event might have been uh, Conflict. It was. Uh, Many, many, many moons ago. It was, I I reckon it might have been 15 or 20 years, pushing 20 years ago. Yeah, I would have been 15 because I've only been down here about 16 but yeah it was it was the it was a very long time ago um now you are still playing space marine games uh in fact that is kind of what we're going to talk about in a well that is exactly what we're going to talk about in a minute your wonderful narrative event uh and before people start thinking uh 40k i'm turning this off and changing the channel stick with us for a bit because largely what we're going to talk about today is narrative event gaming how to set up a great narrative event you know, what are some great ideas that you could incorporate if you are looking to play in and or run one of for yourself? So I think there's a lot in here if you're a bolt action player slash other game systems. Um, but bear with us while we talk a little bit of uh, old school here. Now, Adam, you are still rocking the Space Marines. Uh, you are going a little bit more, how should I say, Warhammer historicals? Yeah, that's right. I've always been a Space Marine player at heart. I've uh, tried to dabble in the other armies in 40k, and it just hasn't stuck. Mm-hmm. I think the um, the Space Marine is so iconic and mm-hmm. resonates with me so much that uh, I can't really get away with uh, get away from them. So uh, my uh, my my 40k journey ended, and and a new one started, going backwards through time narrative time, that is, Mm -hmm. uh, into the Horus Heresy universe. Now, about 12 months ago, we had a good friend of the show, Nick Bedion, who came and played in your event, uh, and he came to talk about Thunder Warriors. And we talked about the lore behind Thunder Warriors and the 30K universe, and we talked about, um, you know, the Horus Heresy as a whole, and uh, we talked about how he could, uh, how you could represent Thunder Warriors on the tabletop. Now, with your event, you really did encourage people to um, go out of their way and create, you know, hobby heavy armies. Like it wasn't just a here's two colors or three colors, spray paint and, you know, get things on the table. Although I understand that you're trying to get as many people as you can in. That said, you sold out in a matter of hours. That's true. And it's and it's kind of unheard of. Um for the heresy scene in Victoria. Uh, mm. Let me just take you back a Please. little bit because it is it is uh, still relative to your question. Mm. So the event that I run is called Preferred Enemy mm-hmm. and it actually started in 2016 as a 40K event. Mm-hmm. And I think we really set the precedent early that it was going to be an event that would embrace all aspects of the hobby. Yeah. And we had a really strong push um visually and aesthetically meaning we encouraged people to show off their hobby and to really try their hardest um when when presenting their army and finishing their force Mm -hmm. and we've still carried that mantra across to heresy nowadays i will say that um it's a testament to the heresy community all around the world not just in victoria that the players are so passionate yeah. about the game that they play and the setting that it's in 
and uh, the armies that they produce, that that just comes easy and effortlessly to to the heresy players. So I guess we were kind of spoiled in that regard. But when we speak about um, the standard of hobby and armies, uh, it was something that I'd never, ever seen before at a Victorian event. The level of hobby was incredibly, incredibly high. And I think that's got to do with a mixture of how good the heresy scene actually hobbies inherently, as well as that mantra that we've continued to carry across uh, with our event, Preferred Enemy. Now, a long time ago, and I'm glad you brought up Preferred Enemy. It was actually my next talking point. Um, So let me lean into that. Um, Back in the day, you and I played in a lot of events. Uh, The 40K scene in Melbourne was extremely prolific. We had events literally every three to four weeks at some points in the year. And there was rarely a time of year where you could go five or six weeks without playing in at least something. Be it, and most of them were two-day events. I, I'm still amazed that I played all that. Um, but the sort of the crown jewel of the Melbourne scene was an event called Arcanicon. And it was at the Arcanicon uh, convention. It has now since moved on to its own, and now it's just called ARC, um, which is, I guess, what we called it forever. Um, but ARC was the largest 40K event in the Southern Hemisphere for years. And it it was original in that it, it was a smaller point level. I, I think at, the point, at, at that point, most events were 1,500 to 1,850 points, um, although Arcanicon was 1,200 points. And so it was on the smaller side. But the, the pack was so heavily weighted towards um, sportsmanship, hobby, army composition, and battle. And it was such, it was the total package. If you wanted to compete at Arcanicon, and people, I mean, it was what people really spent their year. I guess it was the the event that kicked off the season. It was always Australia Day weekend, which is the last day of, or the last weekend of January. And people would spend six months painting their 1,200 points for Arcanicon. And then they would spend the rest of the year adding a unit or two, uh, you know, every couple months um, as the point levels for the year sort of ramped up. And then by the end, they'd end up with like a 2,000, 2,500 point army after they've, you know, chopped and changed units out over the course of the year. But ARC was always the start. And it had such a hobby focus that, you know, it was that next level now, I bring this up because the, the from what I understood, and I have been away from the 40K scene for a long time, um, the, the sort of the hobby level sort of dropped out of other events, uh, but you really tapped into that, and you were, you sort of linked in Preferred Enemy with ARC's aesthetic. Is that correct? I think it was, uh, I think you can draw a parallel like that, yeah. And I think the goal uh, was to champion uh, the hobby as a whole yeah. or, or champion all aspects of the hobby equally. Yeah. So not only, was, not, not only could you attend the event for great games and to challenge yourself tactically, mm-hmm. you could also come to show off your army and the best of your hobby. And what we saw uh, during our 40K days was year after year at Prefer- Preferred Enemy, the bar, the hobby standard, would uh, that, that bar would raise mm-hmm. year after year to a point where it was 
incredibly, incredibly strong. And the, the chatter around the event was that uh, if, if you wanted to show off the, what, the best you can do, you were to come to Preferred Enemy. There you go. So for you, that must have been, I mean, clearly a lot of love and hard work would have gone into, I mean, that, that doesn't even scratch the surface. I mean, it's a, it's a giant two-day event. It was sort of the crown jewel of the 40K scene for, or for the year. Like, that takes an unbelievable amount of work year-round to maintain. Um, that must have been a very hard decision to change game systems. I'm, uh, you know, people can say, 30K, 40K, what's the difference? 30K is you know, an older edition of 40K with cleaned-up rules. Technically, that's true. But 30K is a completely different game system, especially now. It is absolutely different. Uh, where do I? Where where can I? Where can I begin answering this question? So <laughs> I might break. I might break it down a little Please bit. Please do. Um, I think that a lot of the time, heresy gets a misconception from the 40k community that it is a game of just marines playing other marines, mm-hmm. where that's not really true. Um, in terms of the marine list, um. I can I can vouch that there are over eighty different unit choices in the Space Marine list alone. Amazing. And essentially, what you're doing is you're playing in a Space Marine Civil War. That is that is what the game is about. Now you do have splashes of color throughout that. There are Mechanicum that you can play. Mm-hmm. There's Dark Mechanicum you could play, uh, and their rules are due to come out quite soon, hopefully in 2021. Nice. You can play Demons of the Ruin Storm, which is a completely different uh, style of Demons list uh, to what you see to what you're used to seeing in 40k. Right. Um, you can play the Solo Auxilia, which are um, like expert uh, human soldiers mm-hmm. from the Saturn system, I believe. You could also play just your regular human uh, militia or Imperial Guard. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure I'm sure I've forgotten something, but there's there's depth in the game, uh, and and I'll just throw back to Nick Beatty as well. He's created his whole own army, uh, still representing the fluff. However, there are rules there that you can engage in and create any style of army that you want to from that setting. Yeah, man, and it's it's such a rich gaming environment as well. It's not just your standard four by six gaming table. Um, you can play, you know, uh, ship boardings. Uh, you can play, you know, battling through uh, mine shafts. Like there, there's just so many different uh, rule variants that allow you to to take the game into different battles, uh, into yep. different environments. It's it's a really dynamic game system that, you know, has a surprising number of. Uh, expansions to it because when you first think 30k okay there's rules there's a few army lists and that's what you'd come to expect with a lot of game systems but with that i believe there are what what is it are not is it are we in the ninth or tenth big book um uh book nine just came out late last year uh and it has the rules for the dark angels Mm -hmm. which were the last legion to receive uh special rules so when, when you build lists uh, for heresy, uh, everything is quite sandbox. 
And the only limitation to your army creation is your own imagination. Yeah. I know that sounds a little bit cliche, but you can literally build any style of army list you choose. And each legion has its own special rules as well as with certain limitations and drawbacks as well. Uh, and as well as having their own legion special units too. Yeah. So within the flavor of the 80 different choices and uh, I think it's about 15 generic rights of war, which mm -hmm. are specific ways to run an army, you've got uh, depth within each legion as well. So I think inherently people get really creative with the style of army that they want to create, um, which makes which just dro naturally drives the level of hobby standard higher mm -hmm. because people automatically become more passionate about what they're creating. So to transition, just to just to go back to yeah. your last question as well, to transition from a 40k event to a heresy event, uh, it happened quite naturally. There were some 40k players that were disappointed in, in the news that mm -hmm. Preferred Enemy was no longer going to be a 40k event and was purely going to focus on heresy. But that's just a reflection of where my heart was at the time as yeah. well. So now I purely focus on heresy. And to me, the, uh, the heresy community was new. It was something that I thought um, uh, it could benefit from Preferred Enemy. And it was a good opportunity to run an event for a community that hadn't experienced a Preferred Enemy before. Really? So there was lots and lots of new faces at Preferred Enemy this year. And uh, it turned out to be a fantastic event, but I'm sure we can divulge into that soon. Yeah, let's do that. Um, I want to quickly touch on one thing you said before we jump into the mm. event itself. Uh, and that is, I've dabbled with on the side of uh, 30K. I've, I've been working on Death Guard for a very long time. It started out as a 40K army using very old models. And it occurred to me along the way that you know, if I swap the weapons out and change some of the models, I can actually run them as uh, a Siege of Terrace Death uh, Siege of Terra Death Guard list um, when they're just starting to get bloated and be Plague Marini. Uh, and so I've I've been working on it steadily very, for a very long number of years. Um, but the Horus Heresy novels, uh, I started reading those when they first came out. Dan Abnett's one of my favorite science fiction game authors and of course when he put horus rising out of course i had to read it and then i've read almost all the horus heresy books since such a rich universe but even having read those books i was shocked when i jumped into the gaming side of it because i guess i was thinking back to the old game the the space marine game way back when that was the original epic i think um where it was very much Sons of Horus are on one side, Ultramarines on the other. You know, World Eaters are on one side, Emperor's Children are on the same side. And, you know, you have your, your clearly delineated lines um, between who's a, her you know, who's a heretic, who's a loyal to loyalist, and how certain things are fought. Now, one of the things that I, I think is amazing, as you say, 80 units to pull from. Uh, but what 
is often not understood by people looking at the heresy who haven't really dug into it is you can have a loyalist world eater army, even though they are traditionally a, her- a heresy force, like a heretic force. Um, and you can have uh, ultramarines who have gone uh, rogue, renegade. And you can have forces of guys who maybe disagreed with their chapter or have been, you know, we're defending a world way off somewhere and all of a sudden they don't know who to trust anymore. So they don't trust anyone. So that you can really dig in and create really crazy forces. Um, but as you say, it's a sandbox game. So you can create your own narrative. It is not that I need to paint my space Marines the this exact color, because unlike what we think about space Marines in the 40K universe, often those are 1,000, like a, a space Marine chapter is 1,000 guys. Well, a Legion is many times that. And so there are, you know, space Marine chapters maybe within the, I don't know, Night Lords that have their a, a different color scheme or who may have different symbols painted on their armor. So there's just so much creativity with creating your narrative. As you say, Nick Beatty really went off the deep end with that. But that's fairly common, that people do come up with their own stories. It's not about creating the most optimized list to kick my opponent's face in, so much as I've created a leader, let me tell you his story and the story of the guys he's brought along with him. Am am I getting that right? Absolutely right. And that kind of mentality is actually encouraged by Forge World. And just going back to the different forms of heraldry and different color schemes Mm -hmm. within a legion, there are alternate color schemes uh, represented in all the black books. Now, when I say black books, I mean like the big hardcover uh, campaign books Mm -hmm. that are released for the heresy. Um, And inside them, uh, a whole multi, like a, a wealth of, additional fluff and uh, it tells you in-depth stories about conflict zones and how each legion operates as well as um, how many might have defected from becoming Mm -hmm. a loyalist or or sorry staying a loyalist or becoming a traitor and there are splinter fleets uh, within each legion that have decided to turn or not turn and you can also represent those forces uh, in the game uh, through something called like a Shattered Legion, mm-hmm. which is a style of list that you could run, uh, which basically is shattered remnants of either loyalists or traders that are banded, banded together for a particular battle. So that gives you another route you could go down to, to model and, and conceptualize your army. Yeah. And there's also a list for black shields as well, which are like defected pirates, space marine pirates that have banded together and, uh, and are showing resistance to either the loyalist or the trader fleets. So, and who doesn't like pirates, right? Well, that's exactly right. And, <laughs> right. and the, the whole game is just so rich and full of fluff and everybody in the community is really accepting of what story everybody wants to tell through their models. And that's just a testament to the community community itself as well as the rules writers that created the game. Well, let's let's shift that then into, and I'm glad you went that route because that was where I was hoping you would go. So let's segue into Preferred Enemy. So at Preferred Enemy, you had to uh, create a narrative setting 
where everyone who's been spending time creating, because as as we all know, creating an army takes a long time to accumulate the pieces to it, to assemble them, to paint them. And during this process, people are creating their forces. And as you say, in the heresy community, that that often involves a very narrative-centric view of the force that, that, that your players are creating. Yet you had to create a narrative setting that would allow people to bring their armies in and, and you know, take part in this larger conflict that included all of those forces. And we're not talking about, you know, five or 10 people here, what, 36 players. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So how did you go about creating uh, this narrative event? Because it wasn't a tournament. It wasn't uh, a battle to see who's the best player on the day. Uh, although I'm sure, you know, people are keeping track. Let, let's talk about the narrative, how you really accommodated for that narrative uh, when you were planning and running this event. Sure. So the whole concept behind uh, behind Preferred Enemy for Horus Heresy was to create an event that was also different from the other narrative events in the mm -hmm. heresy scene that were running in Victoria because I think it's good to have a little bit of a point of difference mm -hmm. and variety is, is the spice of life at the end of the day. Exactly. So I decided to focus this particular preferred enemy event around a planet called Ayas. Mm -hmm. And inside the player pack, I wrote uh, a couple of paragraphs just describing the planet Ayas, uh, where it's located in the galaxy, what type of planet it is, uh, in this case, I went with uh, an Imperial Conduit for, for logistics and freight mm -hmm. uh, on the border of the Sol system. And I guess timeline-wise, uh, it, it kind of fits with the current novel releases of the Solar War um, epic that's being released at the moment mm -hmm. for the Horus Heresy series of novels. So I guess it was relevant in that regard as well. And also, just to spice it up, I decided to um, give the planet a little bit of a twist. So, scattered all over its crust were ancient obelisk uh, structures uh, that it turned out to be uh, old Necron structures. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess I just go into a little bit of a description uh, in the player pack as to... Um, why they might be there and, and the fact that um, Imperial researchers have been out there and not really finding much about them. Um, they seem dormant and, and unaffected by the population living on the planet. Uh, so I guess I created a little bit of a, a setting for our event to take place in. Nice. Now, not only did I have the setting, but I wanted to engage all the players within the setting throughout the event. So the event was two days, and across the two days, the players fought five battles. Now, I guess we can go into the performer of the event next, yeah. um, but just relating it back to the planet and the narrative setting, I decided to create a worldwide map of IS, mm -hmm. and each round, players on either the loyalist or the traitor side would win victory points for their side yeah so they weren't playing as individuals rather they were playing as the loyalist side of legions or mechanicum 
against the traitor side of legions or demons or warp cults or militia or whatever uh, nasty heretics they could kind of conjure at the time. Mm-hmm. So I decided to run with a map um, at the event and each round the map would update which would give a visual representation of the territories or the continents that had been overtaken by each side, mm-hmm. as well as different conflict areas as well. So each round, players had something to look forward to um, within the campaign. So there would be a running tally of victory points going for each side, and they'd also have that visual aspect of how the campaign was progressing. Now, I have a couple of things here. One, I was following the event through Facebook, and I loved how after every round um, or throughout the event, you updated the map. And so you could see very clearly how the sides were going, but you did that through the Facebook feed. So players, you know, didn't have to wait. They could literally go to their Facebook. I mean, they were in the event as it was, and they could Mm. see, you know, how their side is progressing. Um, Now, you also gave a little write-up of, you know, what is happening in each round, which, of course, then added to the story of the narrative. But it wasn't that players were, if I understand correctly, weren't playing for a particular region in a game so much as um, the overall map shifted depending on sort of overall numbers. It wasn't like I was playing for the Southern Hemisphere's um, third island down on the right. It was like if my side had done particularly well, um, sort of the map shifted almost like a, to show you almost the percentages in visual form. It, am I understanding that right? Correct. That was the goal of the map. However, there was a deeper level to the environment and the tables that were at the event. Mm-hmm. So I did my best to create two snow tables to represent uh, the polar ice caps nice. of the planet. Um, I tried as this is this is more uh, my logistical event organizer hat speaking mm-hmm. at the moment. Um, tried to organize all the tables in some form of uh, logical setup. So I'd have all my red desert tables together to represent one part of a continent, mm-hmm. which might lead into uh, a grassy plain. And from the grassy plain, it might lead into a swamp area. Mm-hmm. Um, and from a swamp, it might lead to a wasteland. And mm-hmm. from a wasteland, it might lead to a um, tectonic volcano uh, uh, section of the planet. Brilliant. So there was a slight method to the madness. Uh, it is a little bit of a an arbitrary concept. Mm-hmm. Um, however, um, I think it really related back to the games that they were playing and uh, different areas on the planet as well. Yeah, and it also gives your players the opportunity to, you know, to have a good time putting their forces on tables that have different obstacles, different challenges they have to face on the tabletop, not beyond just visually being a different color mat. I mean, you, you're giving people uh, a different setting um, that has, and each table had, you know, had different rules depending on what those were. That's right. Um, I kind of guess I went against the grain of how a normal kind of event would run. Mm -hmm. Uh, speaking in 40k terms, let's say, uh, normally 
if you're playing a five-round event at a 40K tournament, uh, there might be a set mission for each round. Right. Therefore, if it was a five-round event, you would play five different missions. And mm -hmm. in round one or in round two, every single player would be playing the exact same mission mm -hmm. on a different table. However, I decided to make it um, a, a little bit more detailed than that. And I went for a specific mission for each table. Meaning nice. if I had 36 players, I had 18 different missions, which were table specific. And that helped to create uh, some variance within the game, mm -hmm. uh, some more flavor, as well as people, the opportunity to write about their force after the event and, and maybe how they uh, approached particular missions or how their army fared in one particular war zone on the planet Aya. So I provided the setting and the tables and the missions, and I really encouraged the players at the event to, um, if they were into the narrative side of things, to engage in that and maybe write their own experiences from the Battle of Aya's into their army's fluff, so if that cool. makes sense. So cool. Because oftentimes, you know, I've played in quite a few narrative events, typically World War II themed ones for bolt action. Um, though a lot of those elements that you're describing are often there, uh, the fact that you are adding to your army's narrative is something that I don't think I've ever experienced in all of my years of wargaming. That is such a cool idea um, that really, again, feeds into the just the the narrative nature of both the 30k community and especially what you were doing on the day that is so cool i think the mentality behind that uh was inspired by music believe it or not mm. um i think you know you know when you listen to a song you might mm -hmm. inter you as brad might interpret that song uh different to me adam right the song is the setting, but what you get out of the song might be a completely different meaning to what I get out of the song. Right. So I try to kind of um, instill that kind of mentality uh, within the player base too. And hopefully some players did it. I mean, some players are a lot more into the fluff than other players, and that's okay too. Um, really, it was just up to the player to, to own it and to, to go with it. That's so cool. Now, logistically, uh, having played in quite a few events, and I don't know the answer when I ask you this, um, I know that sometimes uh, players are on, on sides or able to sort of, uh, if their side maybe is in the lead, they, they might have a little bit more uh, choice. Maybe their side has a choice of which armies of theirs are going on which tables and what they might face. Um, I know that that can be a logistical nightmare, however. Um, how did you arrange uh, who was playing on what table? Uh, and did victories and losses uh, collectively on each side, did that change how you deployed armies? Um, from a TO's point of view, how did that play into the narrative? Okay, well, um, I think event, event structure is something that I value as an event organizer mm -hmm. quite highly. So to me, having a well-structured event and having everything quite organized is very important. And I believe that you as the player or the attendee at the event should only be concerned with rocking up 
to the table, you're allocated and playing a great game with your opponent. So all that administrative stuff should be taken care by me. So I had a friend um, called Stosh who uh, runs a commission painting studio. He was kind enough to lend me his time like he's done with every single preferred enemy in the past. And he is my uh, data data smith, essentially. Mm-hmm. So um, we run a program that is free. I believe it's called Warscore. Yeah. And um, and it's and it's quite accessible. Um, a lot of other game systems use Warscore. I'm not sure that uh, 40k or Heresy use Warscore that much. However, it's a system that is quite user friendly. Mm-hmm. and enables us the opportunity to pair off players as well as allocate them a table. Nice. So really it was the software that uh, did all of our round pairings mm-hmm. and it was the round pairings were based upon how many victory points that particular pay- player had accrued throughout the event. Got it. So um, all that administrative side of stuff was done by our program Warscore. Mm-hmm. Um, however... Written into the player pack, I have incorporated some uh, additional narrative elements that affect each round of games too. Mm-hmm. So I could run you through those if you like. Yeah, please. When we think of uh, the Horus Heresy or, or uh, the attack on the soul system, let's say in the Siege of Terror, mm-hmm. um, I guess we think of uh, the Sons of Horus leading the assault, Horus mm-hmm. the Warmaster, uh, leading his trader fleets to battle. And the defenders of Terra are essentially the Imperial Fists who have worked across the whole heresy to bolster the defenses of the planet. That's right. So I created a few special rules around this just to represent it in some sort of abstract way. So one rule that I had each round was called the tip of the spear. And that meant that one Sons of Horus player on the trader side would earn double victory points in their game, yes. acting as the tip of the spear. Uh, similarly, for the Loyalist side, I had the Sentinels of Terror special rule. So each round, one Imperial Fists player on the Loyalist side will, would earn double VPs in their game. So these additional rules kind of um, created a little bit more flavor each mm-hmm. round. And I think the players really got around the responsibility of maybe having to uh, earn the double points for their side to try and turn the tide of the campaign in their favor. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. One, uh, uh, the third special rule is is the most controversial. Um, however, it was the one that the players were most weary of, and that was called the Coils of Deceit. Now, before the commencement of the event, each Alpha Legion player needed to disclose to me if they were a loyalist or a traitor. Oh, that's awesome. So they keep this secret throughout the duration of the event. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the start of round five, they basically uh, reveal their intentions of their allegiance. So there were some uh, traitor Alpha Legion that decided to double cross the traitors and to fight for the loyalists instead. Mm-hmm. And that actually had uh, an awesome effect on the campaign and um, it made it really, really exciting for everybody involved, I think. 
surprise, right? Oh, that's so cool. And so narrow. I mean, it fits right in with the heresy and, and the I am uh, Elfarius, uh, you know, nature of the Alpha Legion, who you never quite know which way they're going. You never quite know. We had three Alpha Legion players at the event, and two of them decided to double-cross the traitors, and one remained a traitor. Oh, that's awesome. And so did that have, uh, you said it had an impact on the on the overall event. Did that sway great Game 5 tremendously? So did the players know going into Game 5 which sides had switched, or did yeah, they find so, out at the end? Yeah, so going back to the campaign map, mm-hmm. this was something that um, we had up on a large screen at the event. Uh, and it was always on. So players could see round by round what the totals were, as well as having the map as that visual representation or guide. So on the monitor screen at the event, um, at the beginning of each round brief, I would put up the new map. Mm-hmm. So there were generally reactions of, oh, whoa, oh, yeah, we're still crushing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was actually the traitors who were winning all of day one. So that was rounds one, two, and three. Mm-hmm. They were also winning day four. Oh, sorry, round four on day two. And it was the two Alpha Legion players that swung that actually put the Loyalists in front going into the final round. Oh, uh, so how did that then play out at the end of the of the event? Uh, I guess I, I have, I actually, I followed the first day and I, I have not seen the second day. So I didn't know about the swing and I actually don't know who won. Okay. So just to recap it, um, at the big, uh, at the beginning of day two, oh, sorry. Uh, all right. I'll start at the beginning of day two. Yeah. Uh, it was 303 victory points to the loyalists mm-hmm. to the traitors 358 so the traitors were ahead by 55 victory points mm-hmm. round four in day two they actually extended their lead even further so the Ooh. loyalists were on 395 to the traders 511 oh wow yeah okay that's that's significant then the coils of deceit tightened on the traders and it put the loyalists in front it was 466 victory points to 440 victory points going into the final round. So cool. So the traders were crushing every round and extending their lead by about uh, a dozen or so victory points each time. And uh, in the final round, they had a chance to scrape it back. However, the loyalists ended up uh, running away with the event and the total victory points were 589 to the loyalists to 533 to the traders. Oh man, so cool. Love it. It and was. I mean, it's one of those things that, you know, if you were ahead the whole time, you know, you might feel a little salty if the Alpha Legion swapped if this was one of those kick your face in trying to win at all costs style event. But the fact that this is so narrative focused and, you know, the Alpha Legion switching sides is such a part of the Horus Heresy story uh, that it, you know, it just reflects in the event and uh, changes things up. It's so cool. Yeah, and, and that's why everyone was okay with it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, like you said, players weren't playing for sheep stations mm-hmm. or their own personal glory. It was about uh, red versus blue, 
It was about loyalists versus traitors and bragging rights at the end of the day, essentially. Ah, oh, so good. Now, I've seen some great photos from this event. Um, now, how can people find the pictures for these armies? Um, I know that Mike Consto was taking some pictures. I, I've seen pictures of his thing, uh, his Iron Warriors floating around. Not Iron Warriors, Iron Hands um, floating around. Um, of course, Nick Beatty's stuff is amazing. And I believe it just showed up on a YouTube video or two. Um, how can people find pictures for this event? Uh, people can head to the Preferred Enemy Facebook page, mm -hmm. and that can easily be found at facebook.com forward slash preferred enemy. Mm -hmm. And there's a pinned post at the top there with a link to a Google Drive gallery. And inside their gallery, they have access to pictures from the games round by round. Uh, they have access to uh, the pictures from the preferred enemy photo booth, which I set up that people, that players at the event could take advantage of. Mm -hmm. So um, alongside the tables, I set up a specific photo booth uh, for people to have their miniatures professionally photographed because um, uh, I always hear that, you know, people struggle to sort of uh, get their head around taking photos or maybe they don't have the right equipment mm -hmm. um, or the right lighting. Um, so I thought that was a, uh, a good little thing to have uh, to provide that service to the players as well. That's so so I'd set up my camera and do the, um, the, the post-production editing as well in Photoshop and, and, and put them up um, in the Google Drive doc as well. And in that drive too, I've actually got all the missions that people can download for free as well. Brilliant. Yeah, that, I mean, how many times, and I would know you would know this from the old days when we would get ready for events, but how many times do you, you know, you're painting up to an event, you got your deadline, you get it all done, but then you get to the event and you're so proud of it. And then, you know, you, you, you're playing in a venue that might have, you know, f some flat fluoro lights over your head. And all of a sudden, everything on the table just you're like, oh, this is not what this army looks like. Uh, and yeah. so and, you know, you're trying to snap happy, you know, happy snaps of people's armies using your phone. Uh, and, you know, cameras are much better now. But back then, you know, you couldn't get a good picture of anyone's army. The lighting was terrible. And, you know, you never do get the picture of your force. At least I never did. Um, you know, that I thought was representative of the time and effort I put in. I was like, oh, these pictures look terrible. You're going to have to trust <laughs> me, guys. This looks better in person. Uh, but I, I love the fact that you've provided that service for your players. And again, it just reinforces that the hobby elements are important and are celebrated. It's fantastic, man. Yeah, that's right. And and when people put the effort in to create uh to create their armies and they're so passionate about their own hobby, um, they should have a keepsake of their army, which, which are photos. Exactly. And, you know, it celebrates, as you say, the effort and the time and the money that they've put into this. Uh, but it also, I mean, how many times you go to an event, you put all of that time and effort in to create a force and then, you know, there might be a podium uh, and someone might, you know, get a trophy and you give a clap and then you walk out going, cool, I had a great time. There was some great takeaways from that. 
Um, but you know, I didn't get it. You know, some events have little keepsakes that you can take with you, be it objective markers or, you know, dice bags or whatever else. And those are cool. Like, you know, one year at, I, I know I got a beer cozy, um, at Libra Animus and I was, I was so proud of my beer cozy. Um, you know, I think I came to, you know, bottom of the pack, but I still was so damn proud of my little beer cozy for this event. Um, and to have, it's just a great combination of a being able to take something away from the event, but also more to the point B it's, it's that celebration of the time and effort that you put in as well. That is just so great. I think it's such a great idea and I wish that more people would do it. Thank you. Um, I guess I could also touch on, um, the, the goodie bags, uh, mm. if you will, please do. Uh, I was I, about to I, ask that mm. I, that I put together for each player. Um, before the event, I managed to get a whole bunch of great sponsors on board, uh, and they were rapt to hear that not only there was an event happening during a, uh, a I should say, a safe event happening during right. a global pandemic, mm-hmm. um, but they were really happy to hear that it was a heresy event that had sold out um, in, in such great time mm-hmm. and was going to showcase the best of the best hobby uh, in that community. So um, we actually had a few different sponsors on board. I might just shout out them if that's okay, Please, Brad. of course. We had uh, Game Mat EU, who mm-hmm. print awesome neoprene gaming mats. Uh, they helped us out with uh, topping up our terrain mats. Mm-hmm. We had Gamers Grass supply a whole bunch of prizes. Uh, they supply some of the best tufts in the industry for, your, mm-hmm. for your bases. We've got our Ammo Mig on board as well, who supplied a whole bunch of weathering products as prizes. Mm-hmm. And we also had uh, my friend Stosh, who was the data smith on uh, on the on the weekend. Uh, his painting studio called Wissywig Painting mm-hmm. uh, sponsored a couple of prizes with some scale color painting packs. And he was also kind enough to paint up a uh, a raffle prize which was the Horus Heresy character series Forge World um, Abaddon versus Loken diorama. That is such a cool well. diorama, right? Oh, and to yeah, have that totally professionally cool. painted, what a prize. Yeah, it was really, really cool. Um, so I also put together a little uh, envelope for, for players to receive at the event as soon as they, uh, as soon as they rocked up and registered. And inside that pack was a uh, some discount vouchers for our sponsors mm-hmm. uh, and a preferred enemy custom blast template as well. So awesome. it was your typical large five-inch blast template, mm-hmm. uh, branded preferred enemy, and it had an inner ring as well, which was the three-inch blast template That's that cool. people could use throughout their games on the weekend as well as into the future too. Oh man, that's rad! Again, you get you get the cool branding that you 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 know. I, it's that cool thing where you you go to an event and it is one of those prestige events like the one that you've run. Uh, but then you know the next couple of events you play in slash games that you're playing, you get to whip it out and put it down and say, "Yes, I was at Preferred Enemy 2021." You know, back during the lockdown, I was at one of the only narrative events that ran, and it's like a little badge of honor. It's awesome. It is. It's a it's a it's a cool little badge of honor and a keepsake that players can just think back and remember to. Well, Adam, speaking of things that people can think back and remember, 
let's talk a little bit about maybe some of the things that you saw uh, over the course of the weekend that were particularly memorable for you as the TO. Maybe some some armies that you really liked that you saw. Uh, maybe some conflicts, some battles. We we always have, even if you're a TO, and I've run enough events over the years to know that there's always some good stories after any event, um, particularly one uh, as cool as yours. Tell us a little bit, as the TO, what were some, some, some moments that you were either particularly proud of or that were memorable from the weekend? Um, I can shine, I can shine some light on many, many armies from the event. Mm. Um, uh, and off the top of my head, we had some really cool, fluffy matchups as well. So I'm not sure nice. how many of your listeners follow the Horus Heresy closely um, or, or perhaps read the novels. Um, but there were some battles that really represented some uh, bitter conflicts um, in the Heresy, mm -hmm. as well as arch nemesis taking on one another. Mm -hmm. uh, I think in round one, we had uh, some... Talons of the Emperor, which are the Adeptus Custodes and Sisters of Silence, mm -hmm. take on the Demons of the Ruin Storm, which nice. is a really good nod to the war within the webway mm -hmm. during the Heresy. Hell yeah. Uh, we had the Iron Warriors assault the Defenders of Humanity, the Imperial Fists. Mm -hmm. And in that game, the Imperial Fists were actually playing with uh, for double victory points, being the Sentinels of Terror with that oh, special so rule. So cool. And ended up uh, wiping the Imperial Fists to a single man. Oh, no way. <laughs> yeah. We also had a few Dark Angels armies there. There was a traitor Dark Angels taking on a Loyalist Dark Angels mm -hmm. army. Brilliant. Which was really, really flavorful. Um, and if I guess if people want to see more about the battles, they can head to the gallery too and check out all the photos from each round. Oh, of course, you weren't just taking pictures of people's armies. They were you're taking pictures of the battles. I saw a bunch. You I should have, have to thought take so photos that. of the action. Yeah, man. Hell yeah. Oh, and that's I cool. guess and I guess um, uh, speaking to some of the award winning armies, um, we had actually we had eight awards in total or mm -hmm. major awards in total. And for these awards, we had some awesome uh, trophies printed up nice thanks to thanks uh thanks to nick Beatty also who was kind enough to lend out his 3d printer for these yeah man so what we did was we printed a um a huge uh, i think it was about 115 millimeter statue of a space marine in mark three iron armor mm -hmm. and painted it up in gold silver bronze put it on a beautiful little uh podium with mm -hmm. a plaque and uh, there's some pictures of those trophies on our Facebook page as well that people can have a look at. Mm -hmm. We had a, uh, a best trader army and a best loyalist army, mm -hmm. and they were uh, they were both peer voted, like a uh, typical player's choice might be. Yeah. The best trader army went to Dom Fabry for his uh, world eaters, which are just stunning. Mm -hmm. They've got heaps of cool weathering, blood, and, and rust-streaking effects on them. As you'd expect from a good World Eater army, yep. Absolutely. And we, the best Loyalist was actually a Loyalist Death Guard army, led by none other, none other than Captain Garrow himself. Oh, cool. Yeah, so that was really, really cool to see. And uh, that went to Dan Faro, who approached the scheme in a really creative way, too. Mm -hmm. Um. He used the typical uh, bone 
that's uh, normally seen uh, with the Death Guard. Yeah. However, he's chosen to go with a metallic green for the secondary color instead oh, of wow. your typical kind of uh, army style mm-hmm. green. So it gave them a really nice uh, regality uh, and, and I guess royal kind yeah. of look to them, which was perfect for uh, the Loyalist Death Guard. Oh, that's cool. I'm going to have to check that out as a, as a guy who's panning Death Guard because I'm so used to seeing, as you say, that, that army green and the bone mm. together, which is a great color scheme. But to see something that is technically still those colors, but something different would be really great to watch. It was a really nice juxtaposition on the model too, and it created lots of contrast. Cool. Right on. Uh, we had um, uh, the runner-up, EO's choice, and that went to Nick Beatty's phenomenal Dark Mechanicum army. Yeah. That it's man pro- is unbelievable, right? The amount of creativity that has gone into not only the conversions but conceptualizing the conversions mm-hmm. uh, is just stunning. So he uh, he definitely was deserving to pick up an award for that. Yeah, there's thinking outside the box, which is, you know, what a lot of us try to do to try and do mm-hmm. something that's a little different on the table. And then there's what Nick does, which is take the box and throw it off a cliff. That's exactly right. And he does it in such a an awesome way that is so right for the setting, too. It is. It is. Yeah, man. Oh, his, yeah. yeah, his Thunder Warriors were unbelievable. And to I see his dark, to yeah. see them finished. So good. Mm-hmm. The EO's Choice Best Army, so this was the uh, the most major award, went to Mike Consto's Incredible Dark Angels. Which oh, of course, was, they were Dark Angels. I said they were yeah. Iron Hands. I said Iron Hands, of which, course. Which yeah. to us was just so brutally 30K and and heresy. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole concept behind the army was that these these were Terran-born Dark Angels. They were mm-hmm. they were raw. Um, and and the aesthetic of the army was extremely clear. These were dark angels that were sent to the outer rims of the galaxy for pure extermination of species, and it showed. Not only could you understand the aesthetic of the army just by looking at it, but technically it's also brilliant. The, yeah. uh, the level of um, control that he has with highlighting um, and shading a color that is black uh, is difficult within itself, mm-hmm. as well as making it as well as making it interesting uh, with rust streaks and and weathering and all those type of technical techniques was second to none. So he was most deserving of that award as well. Yeah, man, he is such a talented hobbyist. We've talked about uh, he's been he's been mentioned on this show with bolt action events in the past. Uh, he yep. and Ben Llewellyn. Uh, and Ramon, like those guys are such talented, both players and hobbyists and Mike's stuff. Of course, I was getting confused with him being an Iron Hands player because Iron Hands are black. And mm. of course, uh, you know, part of my brain, even though my very first Space Marine Army were black Dark Angels back way back before they turned green, I yep. still think Dark Angels green. Um, so when I looked at his force, uh, on Facebook, I was like, God, that's beautiful. But then of course my brain read iron hands, even though they're not <laughs> anyway. Um, sorry. What Mike. you need to do is go to the gallery and pour over the armies. Yeah, dude. And his army to be fair is, br- it looks brutal. It's great. It does. It yeah. looks cold and it looks brutal mm-hmm. and it, 
it would be an absolutely scary prospect to face if you were living in 31st millennium. Dude, I'm not I am I'm not exaggerating this. It takes a lot to get me to look at a space marine model with a paintbrush yep. in my hand these days, but looking at Mike's stuff uh after like cuz he posted the the link to his things on your website, his his models. Uh god, man, I I definitely took a, a long hard look at my death guard in the in the corner of my figure case in my bedroom and was thinking, "Oh god, I just need a pull out that land raider and a couple more terminators and i'm ready to go and I'm like oh soon soon and i guess that brings me to the next question if i was to finish said force let's talk about preferred enemy the next one is it mm-hmm. is it going to be another 2021 is it going to be 2022 people what? are asking for another 2021 Ooh. however I hate to disappoint, but it's not on my calendar. Yeah, you have a lot I've going got, on in real life, I right? I do. I have a, a, a new member of the family being born extremely soon. Mm-hmm. So that's going to put me out of uh, running events for a little bit of time. However, um, we do plan to run in 2022. Right. And uh, we hope everyone gets ready for it, gets hyped for it, and brings along awesome new hobby as well. Man, including including you, Brad. Oh, uh, do you really want to see my ugly old mug back in the back in the pack? I'm not sure yes. if uh, my yes, shadow needs to grace uh, a Warhammer event, but you know, we'll see. We'll see. I know never 30k is a, is a different thing. It is a different thing. Well, brother, it has been an honor to have you on the show. Uh, you know, it's been far too long since we've uh, talked shop, so to speak. But it is a Congratulations on running a successful event, especially given the weird state that the world is in these days. Uh, I'm so glad you were able to, to to find a time, as you say, to safely run a narrative event. And, you know, everyone who I've talked to that went to the event and I've spoken to a couple of players Everyone said that it was incredibly well run. They had a blast. And all of them made fun of me for not painting my Death Guard so I could play. So um, I, I might just have to get there next time. But again, Adam, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, thank you so much for being such a, a lover of a hobby to to create that event for people to play in, especially just coming out of 2020. Thanks very much, Brad. It's been a, It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Well, man, uh, I guess, ladies and gentlemen, take the time. Go to Facebook, Preferred Enemy. Search it in, find it. There are amazing pictures. Even if you're not a 40K player, even if you're not a Games Workshop enthusiast. And I know some people in here are like me. We played uh, Warhammer, you know, Fantasy 40K back in the day, maybe play other games now. Quite a few people I know who listen to this show uh, listen uh, or play 40K game, or sorry, Games Workshop games now. Uh, I am not anti-40K, and I hope that hasn't come across in this podcast. I just haven't played, you know, some of the main the main fleet games, so to speak, the, the main games that they put out in quite a while. Uh, but this event is amazing, and you should look at the pictures because you might get something out of it that you can take to your own event or um, just be really inspired by people's hobby because, God damn... Adam, you put on a hell of a show. Thanks very much, Brad. And yeah, yeah, I encourage people, even if you don't play the game, you might just love the 
the Horace Heresy setting, mm-hmm. or maybe you read the novels, mm-hmm. uh, you will get something out of just checking out the gallery and poring over the photos and just uh, seeing how good everybody's hobby is. That's right, man. That's right. Well, guys, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening. Uh, I know that I don't always go into Games Workshop waters, um, and I know there are a few people who listen to the show that don't always appreciate when I do. Uh, however, I am I'm super glad to talk about a, a high-quality narrative event, and I hope that you've enjoyed this today. Whether or not you you enjoyed this, and I'm hoping you did, uh, please, as always, if you have any uh, questions, any comments, any sneers, jeers, abuses, anything you'd like to pass on, uh, please find me under Cast Dice uh, on Facebook, C-A-S-T-D-I-C-E. If you message the page, I am the only one who reads the responses. My name's Brad. Hi. Uh, And you're guaranteed a response. Guys, thank you so much to everyone who reached out over the holiday period. I know I've said it in a few episodes recently, but to all the people that wished me well uh, at the end of uh, 2020, knowing that, you know, being a primary school teacher in 2020 wasn't the easiest thing in the world, uh, being that a lot of it was remote learning. Guys, I hope you are as well as all of the wonderful things that you guys sent back to me. Uh, I know that everyone's doing it tough at the moment, uh, be you in the UK, the US, anywhere you are, Australia. Um, and to all of you new listeners in Poland who have been listening, hi. Um, guys, stay safe out there. Please stay well. Uh, and I guess that just leaves what our old buddy Casey always says. And Casey, I hope you're listening to this one, it being a Horace Heresy episode and all. But as Casey says, when you're playing the games that we know and love, I hope that your beverages are cold. I hope your dice roll hot. But more than anything else, we at Cast Dice hope that you are having fun. Good night.